Well, as we come to uh, the scriptures, let us do so in a prayerful spirit. Father, again, we come to this, your word, and we pray and ask again that you would minister to us that we would go from this place this morning knowing that you have met with us and that you have ministered to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> One of the reasons that I um, prepared this in the first place was the... Um, uh, I watched the um, Jubilee service for the Queen, the Thanksgiving service. I don't know whether you watched it or not, but I did. And the Sunday after that at Rochester, I was doing the service and uh, it was Harvest Thanksgiving. So thinking about the two, I came up with this, came to this psalm. The thing that impressed me about the uh, Thanksgiving service for the Queen's Jubilee was the the biblical nature of it. I must confess, when we sat down to watch it, I was rather sceptical of what we would hear. I thought it would be filled with political correctness and all the rest of it. And though it was typically Anglican uh, in its format, it was also biblical. And we ought to be thankful for that. And it followed pretty much the order of this psalm. I don't know whether their service is taken from this psalm or not, but it set out the same order. And uh, for that reason, I want us to think about it, uh, not because uh, if it's good enough for the Queen to have her service of Thanksgiving ordered on it, uh, therefore it's good enough to us to consider it. But I think when we come to, as, as, as people to prayer and to to thanksgiving, we tend to think about, first of all, about ourselves and our circumstances, whatever they might be, positive or negative. We might think about also in prayer concerns for the wider world and the circumstances of our own nation legally and morally. We might even thank God first and foremost for the harvest, the, the, uh, the fact that our supermarkets are filled with products that weren't sitting there 50 years ago, some of them weren't there 10 years ago, uh, and so on. <clears throat> but the interesting thing about this psalm is that the psalmist doesn't begin with those things. He finishes with them but he doesn't begin there in his prayer of thanksgiving. And uh, I want to divide this into three parts. Verses 1 to 4 speak of God's grace to us. So he's thanking, first of all, God for his grace in salvation. That's where he starts. And we must remember that this is a psalm of King David, And uh, he was a man who lived every day on one side of the fence. He never knew whether he was going to wake up or whether if he did wake up, he was going to be alive at the end of the day because of attacks upon him in one form or another. He doesn't begin with those concerns. 
He begins with God. And secondly, from verses 5 through 8, he thanks God for his power and in the way that he's demonstrated that power for all to see. Verses 9 to 13, he thanks God for his generosity and provision to us. So that when we read passages like Philippians, which remind us to uh, pray without ceasing, I want to suggest that here is a pattern. There are many patterns in the scriptures that we can use. The Lord's Prayer, for argument's sake. Uh, We can use that as a pattern of prayer. Uh, But here I want to suggest, out of interest in this psalm, that there is a pattern to it and it's something that we can model our own prayer life on. First of all, God's grace to us, or if you like, his forgiving grace. Praise is waiting for you, O God in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me, and as for our transgressions, you will provide an atonement. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Much more than thanking God for and praying for ourselves and our circumstances, the psalmist points us here and says that it's better to thank God for his forgiveness forgiveness and his salvation. Praise is waiting. And I think in the NIV, it had silence. I haven't got it open now. NASB has silence. uh, But here it says in the New King James Version, which I actually have open in front of me, it says praise is waiting for you. Or if you have the version with the word silence in it, praise is silent before you. In Zion, what's the idea? They seem to be a contradiction But they're not in reality. The idea behind waiting or behind silence, if that's the way it's been translated, is that we come to God and we thank him for one particular thing. And we're silent. We're waiting for him to reveal the next aspect of what it is that we can thank God for. And when we're thinking of salvation... We might want to thank him first and foremost for Jesus Christ. We might want to thank him secondly uh, for the uh, expression of Jesus Christ throughout the the Old Testament. But between the first and the second, we are silent. God is waiting. The problem in the form of the translation is that there's an anomaly in the, uh, in the uh, grammar of the Hebrew. But whichever way it is, praise is waiting to be expressed to God. We can't sit before God and say, well, I don't know what to pray, Lord, because he's already revealed himself to us, not only on a cross, but he's dealt with us and revealed himself in day-to-day affairs. We saw the sunrise coming up here this morning, freezing cold. 
white. The ground was just covered in frost. And as the sun rose, there was a mist across the countryside. It was beautiful. Isn't that worthwhile and worth thanking God for? Didn't Paul, when he wrote that passage in Philippians, remind us to thank God for everything that's admirable? When we see mountain scenery on holidays, wherever we go, we see things that are different. These things are beautiful and they're worthy of praise and of thanksgiving. To you the vows shall be performed, O you who hear prayer. See, God is not portrayed here as just some influence out there. But he is portrayed here as a God who knows his people and in particular who hears his people. It doesn't say he will hear you sometimes. God always hears. Oh, you who hear prayer. In our own prayer lives, do we really pray knowing that God, believing that God will hear? He hears and he says, to you the vows will be performed. Well, we might ask, well, what vows? Scripture doesn't tell us here. But those of you who have taken out membership in in the Presbyterian Church in particular, I'm thinking of, or in any other church, when you take out your membership vows, uh, take out membership, you stand before a congregation or before the elders and you will answer certain questions. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour? That's one of the, the first one, first question in our vows. And we always answer yes, don't we? God will keep you to that vow. If you go back and think about the vows that you took, just simply to join the church. Simple vows to serve and to love one another, to serve Jesus Christ, to give of your time to the church and its activities, to give of your material substance in support of the church of Jesus Christ. These are vows that are made before a God who hears and he says they will be performed. All flesh will come to you. All flesh. Not just believers, but all flesh. Every man, woman, boy, girl ever born, ever conceived, will stand before Almighty God and give an account. The only difference in the Christian is that they will be free. From judgment. Iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions, you will provide an atonement for them. David's not talking here about the actions of, of unbelievers, 
or the actions of others sin against him. He's talking about his own iniquity. That thing, that sin inside us that stops us praying, that thing inside us that stops us reading the scriptures, that thing that's inside us that doesn't want us to fellowship with one another and to come to God in worship. They prevail against me. He's probably the greatest man on earth who wrote this at the time, greatest man at the time, most powerful man at the time. He's not worried about what others might do to him or inflict upon him or upon his nation. He said, my iniquities prevail against me. But he says, for those transgressions, my personal transgressions against the the almighty God, you, Lord, will provide an atonement for them. When you go through the Old Testament, it speaks of Messiah who will come and redeem Israel. That atonement was made at Calvary 2,000 and a bit years ago. Where he came, God came in human likeness into this world and died on a cross. God himself, the creator of the universe and everything that it contains, is making an atonement for your sin and for mine. How does it come about? Blessed is the man or the woman, the boy or the girl you choose. And whom you cause to approach you. Isn't that beautiful? You've got the doctrine of election there. Predestination. Call it what you will. But there it is. We don't understand it. We don't understand how it works. But as happy, satisfied is the person you choose and cause to approach you. You see, he's saying... This is a good sound reason why we ought to thank God for this gift and grace of salvation, for his mercy, because he's the one that's given it. You didn't become a Christian because you thought it was a good idea. You can't become a Christian just to escape the influences of a pagan and unbelieving or disbelieving world out there. Yes, you can enter into a church and enter into a fellowship and you can look like a Christian, you can sound like a Christian, but unless the heart has been changed and drawn, there is no eternity. Here's something else. The psalmist says we ought to be thankful that God himself has drawn us out of darkness into his light. And then having done that, imperceptibly imperceptibly from our point of view he draws us to come and approach the God of God and Lord of Lords that he may dwell in your courts in the bygone age uh, I can remember it at Sunday school we used to sing songs about being a pilgrim we're strangers, the Old Testament, or the scripture says, we're strangers on the earth. The believer is a stranger on the earth. This is not our home. We're on a journey. Where are we going to? That we may dwell in the courts of God and be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Where's our hope? Where is our hope? Is it in, in, in the material 
graces and gifts that God has provided us? Do we want more and more and more and become more and more dissatisfied with the more we get? Or are we happy? Is our greater happiness drawn from God himself in Jesus Christ? From that river of life that flows from the throne of God into the hearts of his people through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Verses 5 through 8, God's power demonstrated. The first thing that we're called to do is to thank God for matters of salvation. Now he's calling us to thank God for his power in all that he has done. What's he done? By awesome deeds in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. You are you who are the confidence of all of the ends of the earth, of the far off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. You who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves and the tumults of the peoples, they also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and the evening rejoice. Why did the sun come up this morning? Why was there a frost on the ground this morning? Why is there a blue sky and the sun shining this morning? Scientists would say, well, it's all a matter of physics, mathematics. I saw a program, I think it was ABC just recently, less than the last, I don't know, about three or four weeks ago it was, where a bunch of scientists vowed and declared that the Big Bang was the source, source of everything that there is. And on the same program, there are other scientists saying, no, they weren't Christians, but they were just simply saying, no, it can't be. There cannot be an explosion where there is nothing. There has to be something there in the first instance. So much for science. It contradicts itself because they leave out the matter, a little matter, of God himself. Yes, we can explain the rising of the sun and the moon of morning and evening and all the rest of it. We can explain those things with physics and chemistry, rules of chemistry and all the rest of it. But what lies behind those? Chance? Luck? Some bug that crawled out of the ooze millions and millions of years ago and had the intelligence to grow legs? To walk on land kind of defies logic, doesn't it? Or is it better for us to thank God that he is God? To thank him in the first instance that we're able to measure things in terms of mathematic, mathematics and physics and chemistry. Awesome deeds in righteousness you will answer us. 
God never does anything in this world out of bitterness. Everything he does is righteous. Now, we don't understand when there are floods in Russia, as we've just heard overnight, serious flooding. We don't understand when people die in such natural circumstances or disasters, whatever we want to call them. We don't understand how that can be a righteous judgment. We don't understand when aircraft are blown out of the sky by a bomb, how that can be a righteous judgment of God. We don't understand when there's a a tsunami or a bushfire or floods or whatever it is. When it's a drought. We don't understand how they can be reckoned as righteous judgments of God. And I can't explain it except to say that awesome deeds showing and demonstrating the power of God That, make human, that makes human power look minute and puny are deeds that are done in righteousness. And I take it that that means everything that goes on in this world, God is tapping the world on the shoulder and say, I, saying, I am coming. I'm coming for my church. I'm coming for my people. There are scientists... Uh, who are Christian men and women who argue that things like earthquakes and uh, that sort of natural disaster is the world shaking off or trying to shake itself off of uh, humanity and in particular human sin. Now that raises all sorts of problems. Be that it is may, that's what some scientists believe. And it does fit. Listen to this. This is Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. This is Romans 8 from verse 18. The created order, we're told here, is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That is the return of Christ and the summing up of all things. Now, how a tree can eagerly wait for that, I don't know. That's what the scripture says. Who is God? That, that he can control somehow the trees to think in such a way. Now, I'm giving trees a human person, uh, personality here. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's a righteous act of God. When Adam sinned, the Lord cursed the ground. And it was subjected to futility because of Christ who subjected it in hope, in hope of the resurrection, in hope of final judgment, in in the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. 
Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of Jesus Christ, of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Until now. We can't explain how that can be. And we shouldn't even try. But simply it's telling us the power of Almighty God is over all things. And that therefore, back in verse 1, it says, uh, all flesh will come to you. And all flesh will one day bow the knee. But then it will be too late. This power is demonstrated still today, isn't it? A long time ago, he established the mountains through his power. He stills the noise of the seas. Perhaps a reference to the crossing of the Red Sea under Moses as they came out of Egypt. An act of salvation, demonstrating uh, what salvation is, bringing Egypt out of, uh, bringing uh, Moses and the people of God out of darkness and out of slavery into a promised land. It's a picture of salvation. It's a selvic act. You calm the seas. You still them. You calm the tumult of the peoples. And what were the peoples doing in that account back in Exodus? And they were bounded by the sea, and behind them came the Egyptian army. God calmed them and opened the waters that they go through, that they were able to go through, and he destroyed his enemies, their enemies. Those who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs, you make the outgoings in the morning of the morning and the evening rejoice. When we see natural disasters, they're not good. They're not pretty. But how do we understand them? Can we come to the point where we see them as part of the righteous acts of God, preparing this earth for Jesus Christ and of your salvation and mine. Thirdly and finally, verses 9 through 13, to thank God for his generosity to us. First of all, we're thanking God for his salvation grace to us, his mercy, then for his power, and, that is, and as it is demonstrated in the world today, and finally, for God's generosity and provision for us. You visit the earth and water it. You, rich, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows and you make it soft with showers and you bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. 
They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. Scripture there reminds us that God visits the earth and then he waters it. God visits. He looks at it. He's very mindful of what it is and its circumstances. A drought here, floods there, monsoonal tropical storms and rain, arid countryside with occasional rain. He visits it and he waters it. He greatly enriches it. The river of God is full of water. Throughout the scriptures, water signifies or is a picture of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation, which is talking about, uh, uh, Revelation 22, which is talking about uh, the time after the world has ended and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And John sees in this vision that he's given of heaven. And he says this, and he, God, showed, oh, I'm sorry, I think it's an angel. He showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of, and of, of the Lamb. John sees in heaven, his vision of heaven, like this river of life flowing from the, from the throne of God. And here in the, the psalmist says, long before John had his vision, the river of God is full of water and you provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows and make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. But the real river of the water of life does that to your heart and your soul and your mind. And primarily that's what we're to experience and understand. We can see that God provides our food. The cotton for our shirts and our clothes. We can see and understand that he waters it and softens it and blesses its growth. But do we understand too that that same river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God through, uh, through the Holy Spirit in us is equipping us for life, setting us free in the knowledge and nurture of Jesus Christ. You crown the year with goodness. Your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. What happens if the crops fail? What then? What happens if our employment dries up? What then? What happens when there's a drought and the water dries up as we've had in the last uh, 15 years or so? 
What happens when flood takes away our livelihood, threatens our lives? What happens when bushfires take over and destroy everything in its path? What if the wars come, the rumour of them? What of economic collapse and the threat of it? What then shall we say? Thank you, Lord. Or why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Listen to Habakkuk. This is the end of chapter 3 of Habakkuk. He's seen... God has revealed to him what he's going to do to the world. And Habakkuk says, When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself. That I might rest in the day of trouble when he comes up to the people and will invade them with his troops. And though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines... Though the labour of the olive tree may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high heels. As God's people, are we with Habakkuk? Are we prepared to pray in times of difficulty as the psalmist prayed and illustrated for us in Psalm 65? Do we trust God through thick and thin? Are we prepared to thank him for what he has done for us in every aspect of our lives? Amen. Amen.